Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. For this conversation, Mike, we're going to move, if you like, to another part of the library of books that make up the Bible, the letters. Maybe just introduce us to, you know, who they were from, who they were to, who wrote them, all that kind of thing. And then we'll look at one particular book, which is Romans. Yeah, as you say, we've moved to another shelf of the library of books that the Bible is made up of. And this is a really important part of the New Testament. Of its 27 books, 21 of them are letters. So that's about 35% of the whole of the New Testament. So clearly uh, an important part. And in using letters, the writers of the New Testament were using a format that was sort of very in vogue. It was the way that you communicated. I suppose it's the equivalent of putting something on Twitter today or or Instagram. Others are available also. <laughs> but they were using a means that was very, very well known, a very popular method of communication to both deal with questions that were raised from the churches to try and direct them and lead them, particularly when there were challenges. And these letters are written by six different authors. The Apostle Paul is responsible for 13 of them. The Apostle Peter, two. James, the Lord's brother and leader of the early church in Jerusalem, writes one. Jude, the brother of James, writes one. The Apostle John's responsible for four. And there's one that is anonymous. Who are they being written to? I mean, to individuals or, or how, do, how is it working? Uh, to both. So they are being written to a mixture of the whole church, often addressed, first of all, through the elders of the church at such and such a place. So it's like an open letter in yeah, that sense. that's right. Sometimes they're open, general. They're sometimes called general epistles, some of those later ones. Sometimes they're very specific to a particular church, to the church in Philippi. And sometimes they're to individuals. So Paul, for example, writes letters to Timothy and Titus, who are young leaders that he's left in charge of places where he's been or where he hopes to go, and giving them instructions for how to lead the church. So we've got a mix of individuals and whole churches. And by the way, when we say whole churches, remember that these letters would have been read to the congregation. You know, not everyone's going to get out their copy of their Bible from their shelf or even these days their phone out of their pocket and be able to say, oh, let's take a look in detail. So these would have been letters that would be heard as they were read to the congregation. And the congregation wouldn't have presumably met in church buildings as we think of it today. No, not at all. I mean, most of them were meeting still in homes uh, in these early days. The early Christians in Jerusalem had gathered together in the great temple forecourts. That was a big place to meet. But we know that churches were meeting in home settings, what we might call house churches or home groups these days. And the church across the city would have comprised of several different homes for the simple reason that there weren't big rooms that Christians could easily go and meet on. And particularly as the New Testament period develops, they are facing not just opposition from the local Jewish synagogues, but opposition from Rome itself. So they're certainly not going to allow them to meet in large public buildings. So one can imagine perhaps Paul's letter having been passed around these different groupings of people and been read in each setting, perhaps by some of the elders of the city church. 
Well, let's take this um, this first book then, or first letter, uh, Romans. I mean, if you're coming to the Bible for the first time, and you're coming to this book for the first time, Roman, what, what's, what does that mean, Romans? It means to the Roman Christians. So this is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul around AD 57 to the church in Rome, a church, by the way, that he didn't know, He'd never visited, and therefore, obviously, he hadn't planted, unlike most of the other churches that he writes to. Planted? Established, founded, probably using a bit of jargon there, aren't I? So he's writing this letter to this group of Christians in Rome who were meeting together. Maybe it would be helpful just to give us a, a quick sort of whistle-stop tour through it, because um, there's probably a lot in it. <laughs> oh, that, it, there's a huge amount in this. In fact, I almost feel embarrassed that we've got to try and get Romans into you know a conversation of, of just under 30 minutes. You know, there was a great preach called uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who many listeners will have uh, heard of. And he preached through Romans and it took him 366 sermons and there were 75 sermons on chapter eight alone. So trying to get through this uh, is is really quite a challenge. But here is Paul writing this letter. We've said to a group of Christians that he hasn't met before, but clearly it's a very significant church in Rome. Why is he writing to them? Well, He's really hoping that they will get behind his long-standing ambition to take the gospel to Spain. And for that, he needs a support base and he needs, frankly, finances. And he's hoping that the church in Rome would get behind him because Paul was always wanting to reach to the sort of the fields beyond that hadn't been reached yet. And so because they don't know him personally, I'm sure they will have heard of him, People used to travel a lot in those days, particularly to Rome, so they will certainly have heard of him, many of them at least. But because they don't know him, he writes this letter to say to them, look, I really want you to know that this gospel, this good news that I'm preaching, really is the same gospel that you yourself received and that you are committed to. And so really the book of Romans is him setting out the essence of the gospel. Now, it is not everything Paul believed. If it were, there'd be a great chunk missing because, for example, there's very little, if anything, about the return of Jesus. So it, it's not his total gospel, but it's the, it's the guts, it, it's the bare essence of what the gospel is and what it does for people and who it is for. And so he takes this letter to share that with them so that they can feel confident in both welcoming him and then sending him on his way when he eventually gets there. So, so what is the, the core of his message? What's, it, what's the main thrust of it then? The core of his message really is summed up for us in, in chapter 1, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. And there you are in those couple of sentences, you've got really what his message is all about. Put it into simple terms for me, if you would, because it still sounds a bit complicated. <laughs> he said, look, this message I've got, it's certainly not one that I'm embarrassed about, even if some other people are. You see, this good news 
is, he's going to unfold in these early chapters, this good news is for everyone, Jew and Gentile, the two big ethnic groups of the world. There is no one excluded from this good news from God. Why do we need good news? Well, he'll go on to outline in the first three chapters of the letter, we need good news because there is bad news. You know, if I just said to you, oh, don't worry, there's a boat coming. You think, well, what's good news about that? Well, if you were on the Titanic and it had just struck the iceberg, it would be very good news indeed. So Paul takes the first three chapters to explain why. And it's summed up in one verse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm not bothered who you are, Paul says, whether you are the most excellent law-keeping Jew or you're the most reprobate Gentile. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's perfect standards. And not one of us can do anything about it. We are cut off from God. We deserve, the word he uses, God's wrath, God's right judgment on us. And so because we couldn't do anything about that, God did something for us. What we couldn't do, God did in sending his own son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die on the cross, to pay the price of our sins so that those sins could be blotted out and we could then come to God and be put in a right relationship with him. And when that happens, he goes on to say from chapter 5, he gives us his spirit and a whole new way of living begins that enables us to live as his children and live in his family. And that, the message of Romans is, is good news indeed. As a Jew himself, how revolutionary is what he's saying to people who were Jews who have found faith in Christ? Uh, it's absolutely revolutionary. As a good Jew, he believed that only God could save. And let's not fall into this trap of even thinking that they could be saved if they kept the law. Good Jews knew that you put your trust in God and then as a result lived out God's law as a consequence of your trust in him. But many had drifted away from that. Now, it is revolutionary because while they believed only God could save you, really for most Jews, who did God save? Well, God saved Jews, not Gentiles. And of course, this is one of the big messages of Jesus himself in the Gospels, but also the early church. People like the Apostle Peter had to learn that when he went to the house of Cornelius, a Roman citizen, and saw the Holy Spirit fall on him and realized God had accepted him. So here is a gospel that is good news first for the Jews, he says. Why first for the Jews? Well, because God's plan right back to Abraham had started with, from, and through the Jews. But it was that last bit that they'd often forgotten. It was not just for them, it was through them. They were designed to be a light to the Gentiles and to take it out into the world. But rather than take it out, they'd huddled it to themselves. Sadly, just exactly what the church has done at times, kept the good news to ourselves rather than gone out there with it. But Paul understood from that moment 
when Jesus encountered him on the road to Damascus, when he was converted, at that moment when he met the risen Jesus and heard Jesus say, I'm calling you to take my good news to the Gentiles, everything changed. You said whether Jew or Gentile, all have sinned. I think you were quoting Paul there. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let's just unpack what, what he's meaning by sin. Yeah, sin is, well, sin is what everybody else does, isn't it? Well, that's so easily what we end up thinking, isn't it? You know, and we sit and tut-tut when we read things in the newspaper or see them on TV and think that's dreadful. But no, actually, the Bible says sin really is is anything where we fall short of God's standards. In fact, the Bible has different words for sin. And one of the words in Greek for sin is the word that was used of an arrow that failed to hit its target. And so sin is every time, you know, we know what's right to do. We're aiming for the bullseye, but we didn't quite make it. We only hit the 25 or, or the outer numbers. And sin is whenever we fail to hit the standard of perfection. Now, I don't know about you, David, but, you know, I often fail to reach the standards I set for myself and the goals I set for myself or the aims and hopes I have for myself, let alone God's standards. So I don't think it's difficult to understand, unless you're a bit of a megalomaniac, that, you know, we do fail to reach our own standards, let alone God's standards. So it, it's about missing the mark. It's about, well, Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And because we're not perfect in our thoughts or words or deeds, every time that happens, we've missed the standard. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And I think if we're honest, we all know it. I mean, you know, if we actually sit down and think, okay, over the last week, you know, did you live perfectly? Did you love everyone as you, you know, should have done? Did you take every opportunity to serve others? Did you worship God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength? I think all of us can see we fall short of our standards, let alone God's. And the truth is, Paul says, we can't do a thing to put that right ourselves. So what's the antidote? Well, the antidote, he tells us in chapter three, having laid it on thick for the first three chapters, that whether you're Jew or Gentile, no matter how good you think you are, because he has this imaginary conversation with someone who sort of thinks, you know, well, I have kept the law perfectly. And he said, yeah, and you've still fallen short of God's standards. No matter how good we think we are or no matter how bad we know we have been, we can't do a thing to save ourselves. And so what we couldn't do, he tells us in chapter three, God did for us. We couldn't put ourselves right with God. So God says, I will put you right myself. And maybe I could just read a few of the key verses in chapter three here, because this sums up so much of this early Section chapter 3, verse 21 says, But now God's righteousness apart from law has been made known, yet to which the law and prophets testify. He's saying, If only you look in the Old Testament, summed up as the law and the prophets, it's all there. They all prepared for this. 
This righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice or his righteousness. It's the same word in Greek at this present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, that's that's a really, really dense I was going to say, some, some big words in there. Yeah, and I can see you looking at me already, and the next question is going to be, so unpack that a little bit. So let me get in there. It is a really dense passage because this is the heart of his argument. What he's saying is this. God, who is a just and righteous God, could not just sit in heaven and say, oh, well, let's just forget about your sins. We'll, we'll just say they never happened. You know, every sense of justice in us when... Someone does something really bad. Everything in us cries out. That, that deserves punishment in some way. And you were saying that we've, in our sin, we've offended God. Absolutely. We've fallen short of his standards. We have, we've not done what is required. And so he's saying this God who just can't say, oh, let's forget it. I mean, imagine if in a court there was a, a big trial. Someone had, let's take an extreme example, had murdered 10 young children. And the judge said, Oh, well, I, I think we can forgive that. We'll write it off. Off you go. Everything in us would be outraged. Why do we think it should be any different with God? But because we can't do anything about it, because sin not only spoils us, it hamstrings us, it stops us doing what we ought to do and be what we ought to be, God said, I will act for you. I will show my righteousness, my justice by sending my own son into the world and he will actually pay the price of your sin. He'll tell us later in the letter, the wages of sin is death. And God's a good employee. He pays his wages at the end of the week or the end of the month. If you keep on sinning, it leads to death. And by that, Paul means not just physical death. He means spiritual death, cut off from God forever. So he sends his son, Jesus, into this world to take that price, to pay that price, to take that penalty of death, my death, your death, the death of everyone listening to this. And he offers himself. Now, Paul uses three pictures. He talks about Jesus being our justification, our redemption and our sacrifice. He's our sacrifice because his death pays the price for our sins. He's our redemption. Redemption was paying a price to get something back. And he pays the price to win us back from the power of sin, to buy us out of that. He's bought us at a precious price. And the third picture is justification. This is the picture of a law court, the Picture of an offering is a picture from the temple. Uh, the picture of redemption is a picture from the marketplace. The picture of justification 
is a picture from the law court. This is the righteous God looking at you and saying, David, I declare you not guilty. Not because he's overlooked things, but because Jesus has taken your place, has paid the price of all your sin, past, present, future. Therefore, there is no more sin to be seen or paid for. Therefore, as you put your faith in Jesus and say, I believe what you've done for me, God justifies us, or in our modern terminology, God declares us not guilty. So we've been made clean through his sacrifice, bought back through his ransom, and now God declares us not guilty. And that, Paul says in these first three chapters, is good news, and all you have to do is receive that by faith. So if, if that is, is the antidote, what's Paul's response to perhaps even the people of his day and maybe even today that say, well, I can just carry on sinning, can't I? What does it matter? Oh, he says, if that's, if that's what you're thinking, then you've not really understood what, what I'm on about. And in fact, he gives the whole of chapter six to this because in his imaginary conversation with his listeners, uh, he imagines them saying, oh, hang on a minute, Paul, then. So if I don't have to do anything and it's all about Jesus and Jesus has now made me clean and declared me not guilty, then, well, hey, I can eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow I die. I can do what I like. And in chapter six, he, he deals with that and says, so what shall we say then? Shall we keep on sinning? Hang on. If my sin leads to God's grace, he imagines some thinking, then if I sin more, then I will get more grace. And he'll say, no, 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 no. Come on, surely you must know at that moment when you put your trust in Jesus, you made a decision to die to your old life, to, to put it away once and for all. That doesn't mean you're perfect yet, but you've decided that's not the way of life for me. How on earth can you go back to that old life now? And if that's what you're thinking, then you've misunderstood the kindness and the graciousness of God in saving you. And he actually uses an illustration in chapter six of baptism. And baptism, of course, in these early days would have been a, a baptism by full immersion, putting someone under the water, symbolizing death and coming out of the water, resurrection. It symbolizes the death and resurrection of Jesus and you identifying with that by your own choice. And he uses that picture there to say, come on, if you've been baptised, if you've died to your old life and risen again, how on earth can you think about going back to that old life? Come on, guys, don't offer your, your bodies and your lives now to that old way of living. Rather, offer yourselves up to God. Live for him. Live, he has a powerful picture then in chapter 6, live as slaves to righteousness. You used to live as slaves to sin. Slave, of course, had no rights. It just had to do what his master told him. And he's saying, before you came to Jesus, you just did whatever sin told you to, but now you've got a new master, Jesus. Come on, be a, quotes slave to him. Do what he says, and that will lead to an incredible life with him and your heavenly father. I guess his audience are thinking, 
life's not as simple as that. So, so what, what help is there at hand? Well, it isn't as simple as that. And in chapter seven, he tackles the whole issue of struggling with sin. And I imagine every single one of us, either taking part in this program or listening to it, will have had our struggles with sin at times. And he looks at that in chapter seven, but gives us the answer really in chapter eight, where he says, you know, the answer to this struggle with sin is through the gift of the Holy Spirit that God gives to us. Again, let me just read a couple of verses from the start of chapter eight. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's thinking back to his law court. The judges declared you not guilty because of what Jesus has done. You've put your faith in him. And don't think that's strange. Chapter four, we should have mentioned God's always worked by faith right back to Abraham. And therefore, you've got that not guilty verdict. And because there's no condemnation, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. He's saying there's a, a new law at work in our lives now. It's, it's a law of being led by the spirit instead of being led by sin, having to do always what sin tells us. And of course, the thing about sin is it's very deceiving, isn't it? Uh, it comes and presents itself and says, come on, you know you want to do this. And we do it. And the minute we do, we know it was wrong. We feel bad about it. But Paul says, don't respond to that law. Respond now to the Holy Spirit whom God has given you. And as you look to him and listen for his nudges in life and ask him to fill you each day and let him lead you, he will increasingly lead you into the right things. Do you know, one of the illustrations I sometimes use when I'm preaching about this is if ever you fly on aeroplanes, you get on, you put your seatbelt on, you look in your little seat back pocket, get yourself set for your flight. And there you are sitting firmly on the ground. What is holding you there? Well, we know the law of gravity. But when it's time to leave, the, the pilot is pushed back, races down the runway, then depending what sort of aircraft it is, but at about 180 miles an hour, he pulls back on his stick and suddenly you take off into the sky. You know, has gravity stopped working? No, of course not. Gravity's all around. But now it's like a new law has come into operation. You know, aerodynamics and all of the laws that make up that. A new power. A new power that gets under your wings and lifts you. Now, gravity's still around, but you are lifted by that wind under your wings. Now, that, Paul says in chapter 8, is what the Holy Spirit does for you when you ask him to come and fill you and empower you. At one level, it sounds like this letter is not only sort of quite thick, as you described it, you know, quite heavy going, maybe, I don't know. But but how, how practical is Paul? Oh, it, it's very practical. And, and perhaps just before I say that, David, I should just say, yeah, it, it is quite dense. It's not the letter I would give to a brand new Christian to start with. And... Just before we jump to the practical bit, there's a whole section in Romans 9, 10 and 11 that is all about the place of Israel. You see, Rome, centre of the empire, just a few years earlier, all the Jews had got expelled from Rome because of a decree by the emperor Claudius. And it seems like a lot of the Christians were thinking, 
because not only the Jews had had to go, of course, but Jewish Christians. And maybe they were thinking, ah, well, I think this probably proves that God is finished with Israel. And Paul takes these chapters to argue in close detail why God hasn't finished with his people yet. Actually, all that's happened is they've just temporarily been set aside to let all the Gentiles come in. So I just needed to include that because that's quite a dense and complex but important part. And then having settled that, because really he's gone back now to the beginning of the letter, that this is good news for both Jew and Gentile. Now, there's not two different ways of them getting saved. There's only one saved. He's very clear. It is through faith in Jesus and his work on the cross. And then there's a, a therefore. In fact, actually, chapter 12 begins with therefore. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. And chapters 12 through to the end are full of really practical teaching of what living as a Christian means, not just in our relationship with me and Jesus, but me and you and Jesus, how we relate together, how we are called to live together, how we are called to live in a very alien culture, sometimes that is very opposed to us. And all of this is not set out as rules. I just love how chapter 12 begins, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. If you have understood what God has done for you in Jesus, if you've really grasped this good news, then it will affect the way that you live, how you live with one another and love one another, how you use your gifts for one another in chapter 12, how you relate to the authorities. Yes, even the authorities that are opposing you in chapter 13 how you deal with cultural issues like, is it okay for me to go to the temple and eat meat there that's been sacrificed to idols? And some were saying, yeah, you know, what's an idol? We all know it's nothing. And others were saying, oh, I don't know about that. And there's a whole chapter about dealing tenderly and carefully with one another about some things that we have differences of opinion about. Now, it might not be idols and meat offered to idols to us today, but it might be, can a Christian go to a pub, for example, and some Christians would feel strongly yes, and some would feel no, and great wisdom here on how to deal with one another. So in summary, because it's, by the sound of it, an amazing letter, what would be your recommendation to how to approach it when you're coming to it, perhaps for the first time? Well, I would say this, if you can, just read through the whole book. Don't stop over the difficult bits, of which there are quite a few. It's one of his most densely written letters. Read through it from start to finish and get the feel of it. Remember, this letter would have been heard by people. They would not have had the opportunity to stop and ponder over this word and that word. They heard this. So read it straight through and get the feel. And I think as you get the feel, what will stand out is Paul's commitment and passion to this good news. As he said, I'm not ashamed of this good news. And as we read this, I think what we see is the amazing thing that God has done for us in Jesus. When we could do nothing, God sent his own son in the world to die in our place, to pay the price for our sin. 
and how that then flows out into a life that is lived very differently, not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but by depending on God's grace and by asking daily for the help of the Holy Spirit. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.